And I thank God for all who have led us in worship today, especially for our young people, our students, who've done such a marvelous job in helping us all to lift our hearts in praise. Today we continue a sermon series called Rediscovering Church. And we hope that during this series, all of us will rediscover church and the great meaning that we have in the community of Christ followers. Today, the sermon title is a foundational question along these lines. What is the church? And I'll read one verse, Matthew 18, 20. These are the words of Christ. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior, amen. What is the church? This question has collected countless answers across the years, but the answer that has been most formative for Baptist Christians is found in John Smith's 17th century treatise entitled Principles and Inferences Concerning the Visible Church. Therein, Smith defined the church on the basis of Matthew 18:20 saying, a visible communion of saints is two, three, or more saints joined together by covenant with God and themselves, freely to use all the holy things of God according to the word for their mutual edification and God's glory. Today, I want to follow Smith's lead and explore the nature of the church by investigating Matthew 18, 20. Let me begin by expounding the first major portion of the verse. For where two or three are gathered in my name. This evokes Matthew 4, 19, when Jesus called his first disciples, Peter and Andrew, saying, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. He did not start his movement with one follower, but with two. Jesus has always called people to follow him communally, not individualistically. The two-ness of the church in Matthew 4:19 matches the quorum required in Matthew 18:20. Two people. This means that for example, if you and your spouse are both Christians and later this evening you say a prayer together in Jesus' name at your home, you are a church. On the other hand, one believer praying by himself in a glorious cathedral does not constitute a church. The church is, by definition, a plural gathering. 
the church must be a community, even if it is a very small community. Of course, once Jesus called Peter and Andrew, it wasn't long before he called James and John too. Now what if Peter and Andrew had thought, hey, wait a minute, this is our thing. We don't want James and John in our Jesus club. That would have been completely antithetical to the type of community Jesus has designed. The community Jesus calls is always and necessarily open. That's why in Matthew's gospel, there are two disciples, then four, then 12, then 70, and by the second chapter of the book of Acts, 3,000 people are saved and more are being added to the church daily. The church is constantly and intentionally welcoming new people. There's a hint of this in Matthew 18, 20, when Jesus says where two or three are gathered. Maybe two start the prayer meeting and someone happens upon them and wants to join in. Maybe a Tuesday night small group encounters a married couple that wants to come. Uh, maybe a church of 2,000 has a family of five that desires to join. Whatever the case, the tension in our text between two and three suggests a group that is inherently indefinite. A group characterized by openness and fluidity. This reflects the tension in Matthew 4:19 between follow me and I will make you fish for people. In the group Christ assembles, there's an intentional, ongoing balancing act between who we are and who we are going to be. We might call this the dialectical tension between fellowship and outreach. The church involves fellowship among its members and outreach to others. This dual commitment entails a constant struggle between church as a gathering of friends and church as a gathering that welcomes strangers, between a church that maintains its identity and a church that adapts its identity to include new faces. Before long, we edge up to one of the most important questions about the church. Is the church primarily a huddle for saints or a hospital for sinners? When I was pastoring in North Carolina, a guy came by the church one day and explained to me that he had just gotten out of prison and he had a sincere desire to turn his life around. As we talked, I encouraged him and invited him to come to church and worship with us and get involved in our church because we believe that Christ welcomes and forgives and transforms all who come to him and follow him with faith. He told me he'd be at church the next Sunday. To be honest with you, I doubted he would come. But on Sunday morning, he was on the front row in the sanctuary. He worshiped with us throughout the entirety of the service 
And after the service concluded, I looked for him in the sanctuary because I wanted to greet him again and welcome him again and tell him how glad I was that he had come. But he was nowhere to be found in the sanctuary. So then I looked for my daughter Maggie, who was three years old at the time, to say hello to her. And she was nowhere to be found in the sanctuary either. Normally, it would not have been too unsettling for me not to be able to locate Maggie immediately after a worship service, but this particular Sunday, I knew there was a person with a criminal record, a person I did not know very well, in the building. And I wasn't trying to judge anybody, but I needed to take care of my daughter, so I rushed out of the sanctuary to find Maggie to make sure she was okay, and she was fine. She was hanging out with two wonderful ladies in the church library. But that experience has led me to wonder, should church be a place that is safe, a community of trust and righteousness, a gathering that's like family? Of course it should. And should church be a place where newcomers are always welcome, a gathering where people who are rough around the edges can be included, a community where sinful people can find their way to Christ and be truly transformed? Of course it should. But if church should be a righteous community that trusts each other like family and a community that intentionally welcomes strangers and sinners, then there's an unavoidable, irreconcilable paradox in the very nature of the community that Jesus has designed. It has Peter and Andrew, but it also has Judas. It has James and John, but it also has Matthew, the tax collector. It has at least two, but they're always open and hospitable to an unknown third. It's important to acknowledge that hospitality risks the stability of a community. In fact, a church that practices hospitality shows more interest in the community it is becoming than the community it already is. Here's the thing about the two welcoming a third. Even if the third is just as righteous and trustworthy as the other two, even if the third is just as kind and humble as the other two, the third is an individual with a distinctive personality and certain idiosyncrasies. The two are going to have to adjust their way of being in order to welcome the third, just as the third is going to have to adjust in order to enter the new community. As theologian Miroslav Volf puts it, each of us in his or her own being is qualified by others. You are still who you are at church, the same core person, but each of us undergoes a certain modification of being when we gather and fellowship and follow Christ alongside others. We adjust and adapt to the community in which we find ourselves, and ideally, iron sharpens iron and mutual edification occurs as each of us is sanctified by those around us. When I think of the two always ready to welcome a third, I think of the noted postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida. 
Derrida critiqued the whole concept of community and proposed instead the ideal of an open quasi-community. The open quasi-community is not a settled group that has locked the doors and barred the windows, but a group that is always welcoming, vulnerable, unstable, anticipating its next new member. The open quasi-community is not a circle of people holding hands tightly where if you try to enter you might get denied or even clotheslined like in a game of Red Rover. Instead, it's a community of people holding hands loosely that is glad to drop them momentarily in order to welcome a new set of hands into the expanding ring of fellowship. Since the makeup of the group is always in flux and the unity of the group undergoes new challenges with each addition, it is what philosopher John Caputo calls a weak community. Thus, it needs something strong to hold it together. For Derrida, as a postmodernist, there is no foundation. But this is not the case with the two or three that are gathered in Matthew 18, 20. They have a clear foundation. They have a firm foundation. They have a strong foundation foundation and that is Jesus Christ he says where two or three are gathered in my name the name of Christ is a strong foundation because it is the name in which salvation is found the name of Christ is a strong foundation because it is the name above all names the name of Christ is a strong foundation because it is the name of victory over sin and death. The Greek literally reads, where two or three are gathered into my name. Some interpreters think this means the worship of Christ. Some think it means prayer to Christ. Some think it means submitting to Christ's authority or facing toward Christ or seeking union with Christ. I want to suggest that the phrase about gathering into the name of Christ signals that the church directs every dimension of devotion to all that Christ is. The two or three are not just gathering for a social event. They are gathering to direct every dimension of devotion to all that Christ is. The church gathers to worship Christ as God incarnate. The church gathers to submit to Christ as our Lord. The church gathers to receive Christ's grace as our Savior. The church gathers to learn from Christ as our teacher. The church gathers to seek Christ, to know Christ, to praise Christ. Christ, to love Christ, to draw near to Christ, to fellowship with Christ, and to become one with Christ. 
The church gathers in devotion to the God revealed in Christ who came from heaven to earth to save us, who taught us the truth, who showed us how to love, who died on the cross for our sins, and who resurrected from the dead to grant us everlasting life. The resurrection of Christ leads us to the second major portion of the verse when Jesus says, there I am among them. He does not just mean that his memory is inspirational. He does not just mean that his ideals live on through his followers. He means that as the resurrected and living Savior, he is spiritually and supernaturally and actually present with those who gather in his name. Whether it's two or three or two or three thousand, he is there. That's why you can have a powerful worship experience in a tiny prayer meeting or at a mega church on Easter Sunday. The power of a church is not in its size, but in its Savior, who is ever-present in the gathering of believers. English translations have not been too much help to me in understanding the presence of Christ in the church. The NRSV says, there I am among them. The NASB says, I am there in their midst. The NIV says, I am with them. These all have a rather vague sense. But the Greek says, there I am in the miso. Miso literally means middle. I find it illuminating to consider that where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he is present in the middle of us. Christ lives between believers in our gathering. We know Christ is high above us, reigning in heaven, and we know Christ is within us through the Holy Spirit that dwells inside each believer. Yet Christ is also between us. I mean, between the bodies of Christians greeting one another in the church hallway, between the 75-year-old and the 11-year-old standing in line at Wednesday night supper, between two Christians sitting beside each other at prayer meeting, between Christians working side by side on a mission trip, between Christians studying scripture together in Sunday school, and between believers this very morning in this place as we worship Christ together. The living Christ has an interstitial presence in the church. When we gather into his name, Jesus lives and breathes in the space between his followers, in our hugs, in our handshakes, in our conversations, in our interactions, in our prayer, and in our worship. It's beautiful. Someone might say, but, but preacher, now listen, anyone who's been around churches very much, knows that church is not always sweet and spiritual and Jesus-y. 
It's true. Some years ago, I met a man, a Christian man, who was visiting different churches in town and worshiping at different ones here and there. And he had no plans to join any church. We got to talking, and I learned that the reason he was visiting churches but not going to join one was because at his former church he had been asked to serve in a lay leadership position. And while serving in that lay leadership position, he experienced what he called the ugly side of church. It discouraged him so much that he left that church and refused to join any other church. This guy did not sugarcoat church life, nor did Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 18, he acknowledges unrighteousness in the church, confirming that church is a hospital for sinners because we all fall short. The verses preceding Matthew 18, 20, discuss how to deal with church members who sin and disrupt the church's fellowship and won't own up to it or adjust their ways. So clearly, church is a community where sin occurs, where friction sometimes develops, and where there are wrinkles in the fabric of fellowship that must be ironed out again and again. Yet, it's in this very context that Christ says he is present wherever two or three are gathered into his name. One purpose of this passage, then, is to assure us that even when church is difficult, church is still the community where the living Christ lives in the middle of us. Indeed, I've had prayer with a homebound member at their home and sensed Christ present in the middle of us. I've sung praise songs with a small group of believers by the ocean and sensed Christ present in the middle of us. I've had hard conversations with Christians in which sin was confessed, forgiveness was extended, and tears were shed, and sensed Christ in the middle of us. And I've gathered with you all around the holy table with the bread and the cup and felt Christ pulling up a chair in the middle of us. In the church, the living Christ is not only above us and within us, but also between us, interstitially present in the middle of our fellowship. And since the risen Christ is present in the middle of the church, we as a community transmit the presence of the living Savior. We convey Christ to the world. The word of God made flesh for the world is in our words. The love of God made flesh for the world is in our love. The mercy of God made flesh for the world is in our mercy. The ministry of Christ for the world is in our 
ministry, the hospitality of Christ for the world is in our hospitality. The compassion of Christ for the world is in our compassion. The care of Christ for the world is in our care. The feet of Christ in this world are in our feet. The hands of Christ in this world are in our hands. The entire body of Christ in this world is in us, the church. And that's why despite the church's many faults and foibles across the world and across the years, church is still the community to which people gravitate when they find themselves in need of help, in need of hope, in need of meaning, and in need of love. And we stand ready to say, welcome, welcome, amen. If you have never put your faith in Christ, won't you come forward today to put your faith in the living Savior? If you would like to be baptized, won't you come forward to be baptized soon. If you would like to join the Second Baptist Church, we would gladly welcome you as a new member of this faith community. As we have our final song of this worship service, let us respond as the Holy Spirit leads.